Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's podcast, I am talking to the incredibly lovely Kerry Cryer from Brinkworth Dairy. Now, in 1910, Kerry Cryer's great-grandfather established the country's very first ever pedigree Frisian herd of cows in a beautiful corner of Wiltshire. A hundred years later, Kerry is doing her family's farming history a very proud. The Frisian descendants produce the amazing milk, which Kerry then turns into award-winning cheeses. From the traditional Wiltshire loaf to newcomers, such as the oozily unctuous Royal Bassett Blue. In this conversation, we discover where Wiltshire cheeses feature in Jane Austen's novels and how each batch of Kerry's cheese have influenced by a mind-blowing number of factors, starting with the very herbs her cows get to nibble in the fields. That's in addition to exploring the real cost of milk and yoghurt, and why Kerry is exceptionally unlikely to give you a discount, but luckily her husband Chad very well might. Plus you'll get Kerry's top tips on how not to waste a crumb of food, and this includes feeding leftover homemade meat to the pigs with some very very interesting results. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Kerry, hello. Thank you so much for uh, sparing the time for me hello, to come and visit. Mark. Thank you. I have no idea. I've been driving for a few hours to get here. Can you mm-hmm. just explain where in the world am I? Because it's very beautiful. But just yeah, bring bring oh, this place to life. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, we love Wiltshire. We're here in North Wiltshire in the Dauncey Vale. And this pasture land around us is characterised by having small fields with lots of hedges. Um, You'll be able to hear the birds outside. We're right next to the railway line, so you might hear the trains going past every so often. Um, And yeah, I love Wiltshire and it's inspirational countryside and yeah thank you for visiting <laughs> no it's beautiful I, I say it's not a part of the world i know particularly well but uh you've got lots of big hills so you get loads of stunning views i've been coming over the crest of a number of hills mm. and going oh my goodness look there is britain uh yes, before me yeah. and then when i got out of the car and there was the sound of of mooing cows yes. and, uh, and bird songs so i felt instantaneously uh, relaxed yeah it's so quite it's- a gentle kind of countryside it not, is. not rugged at all, just soft. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Good. Well, that sets the scene. And what an amazing place to uh, to make cheese. So can you just explain to me, this is a sort of, you know, we're on your farm in essence, mm-hmm. but but you've been here for a, a, a number of generations, not you personally. How, how have you ended up here? Just tell me a little bit about the history of the farm. Collingbones have been farming in the Dauncey Vale area for over 250 years. My great-grandfather, William Collingbourne, the entrepreneur came to Hill End Farm in 1910. He established the first ever British pedigree Frisian herd. So nowadays you see black and white cows all over the country, but for him, he was a pioneer. And then my grandfather farmed here. My father 
still farms here. He's turned 70 yesterday and he's still farming. Now I'm farming and making cheese and then I've got three sons on the farm. So we'll see what happens wow. next. Wow, could be many more generations. So I've, I've just got to quickly go back. So you're saying, what is a, a, a pedigree herd and the black and white ones, are they? is that what they are? Or just tell so me a bit about pedigree them. means that they've all got named, they're all registered and listed with the Pedigree Frisian Society. Um, so when we have a mummy cow, for example, Brinkworth Maureen, I'm making that up. I was trying to think of one beginning <laughs> <Yeah>. with M. <laughs> Perfect. Um, her daughter will have a name that begins with M as well. So then her daughter might be Brinkworth Matilda and so on. Uh, and all of their breeding records are kept. So we have all the breeding records going right back to the original cows that we had in the cow shed on the farm. If we use the same name again, then they become, for example, we've got many Brinkworth Kerries in the herd, of course. Brinkworth Kerry the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and so on. Okay. So so go the, you can you can trace the lineage of the cows that are here now all the yes, way back to yes. 1910 when yes. the original cows. So yeah. they're all in some way related, yeah. basically. So, and also it's a closed herd, which means that we aren't bringing in other animals. We're not buying in animals. Every animal on this farm is born here, which is fabulous for biosecurity to make sure we're not bringing diseases onto the farm. We use artificial insemination to make sure that we've got outbreeding, but we also do use our own bulls as well. Wow. Amazing. I have to love having these conversations. I, 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 as will be painfully obvious very soon, I know very little <laughs> about cows. Restaurant Yeah, exactly. Well, it's just so good to go back to the to, to the to the source and element and to understand it. But yeah, you know, cows. You're right. Yeah, everywhere you drive across the country, you see them stood there in fields. But little did I know about their lineage and the yeah, related and herds and and, and uh, pedigree and all that kind of stuff. So um. In the, in the blood, in your family for a long, long time, when did you, Kerry, decide that, that, that farming was for you? Because my understanding is you were going on a different trajectory at one point. That's right. My dad had six sisters. So from birth, his career, his destiny was mapped out for him, no choice. I had two sisters. And I think because we were girls, we were expected not to make our fortune on the farm. And also we were told quite firmly there is no fortune to be made in farming either. I went off and trained to be a teacher. Before that, my ambition was to be a Blue Peter presenter. Oh, and that'd wow. Be amazing. That would have been cool, yeah. wouldn't it? Although I reckon, to be fair, you know, you could have gone through one of the one of the windows and found somebody making cheese in a pretty cool farm, wouldn't you? So, yeah, you might not be presenting it, but I think you're living the life. Yeah. Maybe. I should not see if I can bank. do a feature on Blue Peter one day. Oh, wow. Can I get a badge? Yeah. How do I... Can <laughs> Let me do something. Yeah, invite them down. I could give you a badge. Our um, logo for our dairy is our family coat of arms, in fact, the blue <laughs> and white shield pattern that you'll notice. So I could make that into a badge for how, you if you like. How do you go about getting a coat of arms for your family? <laughs> so I don't know how they got it originally, but the Collingbourne family, uh, William Collingbourne was Sheriff of Wiltshire and he had manor lands. There are villages around here, Collingbourne Kingston, Collingbourne Deuces. But he campaigned against a bad king and wrote a poem that then appeared in the Doomsday Book, Lovell the Cat and Someone Else the Dog Ruled All England Under the Hog. And he was hung, drawn, quartered. Our coat of arms was taken away from us, of course. Our lands and titles all taken away from us. We've come down a long way in the world. Wow, blimey. So how long ago was that? That was a long time. I need time. to check my history. It might have been a King Richard, I think. Blimey. Okay, yeah. amazing. So uh, what you you were potentially going to be, did you, did you ever actually teach or did you just do the training? I did a year's teacher training in Cambridge and met my 
current husband, Chad, which makes it sound like I have yeah, a string on, of them. Only husband. I'm intent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've only got one husband. <laughs> a bit of an underachiever yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and I met Chad and then I came back and I did teaching in Harden Hewish School in Chippenham and then Mumsbury School. But I found that teaching wasn't for me. It was the classroom management bit I found a bit tricky then. I I was quite young, I think, trying to control children and I was going to say it's not the classroom it's presumably it's the kids management side of it, is it? <laughs> my, my wife is actually a primary school teacher and she has a gift to be able to walk into a room with a hundred primary school kids yeah. in it and they will fall silent and they will somehow respect her I walk into the same room and they yeah. see me as a human climbing frame literally they run at me they jump on me they've got no respect I cannot control them so that that ability to control kids is a gift I yeah. think so. oh I think that I would be better at it now I've got my own children and I know how hard it is even to get them to want to brush their teeth now Never mind trying to get them to want to learn about physics or biology or something. So I've got a better idea about kids now. I'm sure I've been excellent teacher I'm sh- now. I'm sure yeah. you would, without, without a shadow of a doubt. So was there a particular kind of eureka moment or trigger where you said, oh my goodness, I'm actually going to go into the into the family tradition and get back on the farm? Chad and I were driving back from school together, looking out across the fields, and Chad said, let's do something with the farm. He was beekeeping and he said, let's start Bee World, a bee theme park. And I said, let's not. <laughs> I know, so I love the idea of that. Bee I, do, I love I bees and honey. Come on. Yeah. And that probably would have been the best thing to do. Is it but definitely I, off the list? Is it still possible? Bee world. Maybe we could. <laughs> <laughs> when I've mentioned it, someone yeah, else might yeah, do yeah, it. It's true. Yeah. Um, but I had done a cheese making course with dad a long time ago. So I said, I can make cheese. Although I couldn't. I thought I could, but I couldn't. There's so much to it. So much to learn. We had a lot of bad cheese at the start. So was the farm not making cheese at the time? No, no, it was just traditional small family dairy farm. Okay, excellent. Um, so what would have happened then if you hadn't come back into the farm? Do you know what, what would have happened to the farm? It feels like a sort of sense of responsibility when you say fifth generation farmers. Hey, it is a sense of responsibility. Everything's got to, I mean, not necessarily make money. It's sometimes quite hard for farming to make money, you know, but you, you have to financially make it work a bit. So if I hadn't have done this, it would have been tricky because it's possible to have the farm and then you could perhaps rent the fields out to someone else. You could have a Wiltshire wildlife project on there. You could do some sort of ethical management of the fields. But for the cows, for, for that continuity, there's the continuity of the bloodlines going all that way back. There's the continuity of twice a day, every day here at Hillend Farm, those cows have been milked, come what may. And... For that to stop, mum and dad are so proud of the breeding of the cows that they've done. They've bred cows for longevity, for great feet, udders, legs. We've had the mother, daughter, grandmother, great-grandmother all in the herd together. So our cows have a good long life. We don't work them hard. They have a gentle life. They live for a long time. And the genetics mum's created with her breeding programs, she's really proud of them. And it would be, it would be, yeah. It is a huge sense of responsibility. But equally, I wouldn't want my children to feel that I've condemned them to this life. I mean, it's a super opportunity if they want to pick it up and run with it brilliantly. But I don't want them to... I wasn't brought up that I had the sense of duty that it was what I had to do. I kind of fell back into it. You know, it's a great opportunity, but I wouldn't want them to feel they had to do it. I'd still want them to have free choice in what they're doing. Yeah, amazing. So your 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 parents must be pleased then that you've uh, you've kept the tradition going and My the cows dad, are being well looked dad's after. Dad's really excited and he loves it. He likes milking. He's really happy. Mum is 
probably would have looked forward to retirement a little bit more. Okay. And if yeah. we hadn't have hung around, maybe the cows would be gone by now. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are having to work a little bit harder because of me. But I'll look after them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bless. okay. Um, so actually, you know, being running the farm, I guess you'd, you'd, you'd seen it as a child, but um, once you make the decision to come back into the farm, you presumably had certain expectations. Just explain some of the things that maybe were very different to what you were expecting, you know, in, in day-to-day life uh, as, as a farmer. Oh, um, how are things different than what I had expected on the farm? I think, I don't know if I had enough expectations. I think that I had this idea of I would make cheese and I was focused on that to start off with. And there was a concern, how on earth would we make it work when we had to take over running the farm as well? Um, I I don't know if we fully addressed that yet. (laughs) Work in progress. (laughs) Because there is so much work to be done. Um, I don't know. I suppose, I don't know what expectations I really had. I remember meeting somebody once at a farmer's market that was selling meat there. And I said to her, what, you come here every weekend? You're selling it, selling here every weekend. And I had this mission that I would be, I think, perhaps going to supermarkets more quickly or something. But here I am every weekend. I'm now at the farmer's markets. We're at Stroud every Saturday. I'm at West Hampstead every Saturday. Chad's at Queen's Park in London every Sunday. So... Perhaps it's harder work than I thought. Yeah. And is that a conscious decision to, uh, you know, you say that one route obviously is the supermarkets, for example, and, mm. and just the wholesale, but you, you're going directly to the consumer. Is that through a, a sort of conscious desire to do that or through necessity? Selling directly to the consumer is fantastic because you get to see the wonderful reactions when people taste your product. You get great feedback from them. And it's a really quick route. Instead of having to comp convince somebody else to then convince somebody else to finally convince the end user to take your product. Whereas with this, you're going straight to the customer. You know, it helps with margins as well because you're getting that customer end price instead of somebody else taking their chunk all the way along. Helping people have that connectivity so that they can feel closer to the countryside helps as well. If they're buying from a supermarket, that block of cheese compared to if they're coming to the farmer's market, they'll meet me. I'll tell them what's been going on the farm that week. I think it does help bring people closer to their food if they're meeting the person that's made it. I agree. And and, and that's kind of the point of this uh, this podcast is all about, you know, the humans of hospitality and the people. Mm-hmm. And that's not just hospitality as in where is the food served and the person who's kind of, you know, making you that coffee. It, it, it's so important, you know, for forever we've relied on, on farmers and where our food comes from, mm-hmm. from the point that we stopped being nomadic and we actually kind of, you know, put down some roots and started to, to set up villages. So humanity has, has come from this and it would be, you know, it'd be a shame to lose it if food just becomes a commodity that you buy wrapped in cellophane. So, uh, and, and you take a a lot of this, uh, the markets you do are often in London, I think, aren't you? So you literally take the country into the into the heart of London. Yes. Um, so the people that we're meeting wouldn't have much exposure to the countryside, but they are people that are coming to the farmers' markets. They care about their food. Um, and they love our great coffee and our great cheese and our great yogurt. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So uh, you decide to go to, to get involved in farming, to leave teaching, and then cheese is your thing. You mentioned that you you thought you were great at cheese and then realised actually it's quite hard. So mm. what what are the secrets to making amazing cheese? Then Why is your cheese so good? And you've just kindly shown me around and given me some samples and it oh, is beautiful. Oh, you've been so lucky. I you've have. tasted, tasted some of my stuff. really precious cheeses that <laughs> yeah. only me and a few select people well, get to try. Well, I do feel very privileged. 
worth yeah. the drive. But yeah, yeah so imagine what's... it's like some being taking somebody to a very special wine cellar and, or drawing off a little bit of oh, a barrel of whiskey I, or something. I, I, yeah. I do feel privileged. So, <laughs> so yeah, what's the what's the process and and why is your cheese so amazing? Making cheese, it depends on so many factors, the temperatures, the acidities, the milk, the grass, the species of animal, the timings you're doing things for. All those factors influence how the cheese will turn out. So it's possible to make cheese. It's possible to make great cheese. What's hard is to consistently make good cheese. And it's a real challenge on a farm like our, on um when you're taking milk from a single herd, because every day you take the milk, you're getting a slightly different mix coming through. Our cows are out at grass for at least 240 days of the year. So what herbs they're nibbling in the pastures um, will be influencing what the milk is like as it comes through. The individual animals that carved in, they'll have different fats and proteins in their milk that will be coming through. Whereas if I was taking milk from a mass mixture of loads of milk the milk will be much more standardized so what it gives me is an opportunity for something truly exciting to emerge it can be more of a challenge because I've got to make judgments about the milk and adjust what I'm doing all the time but it can be truly exciting as well and create something really wonderful and unique by doing things this way so does, does, is cheese seasonal? Can you produce it all year round? Is it just the flavour profiles that change? You can produce it all year round as long as you've got the milk. So traditionally, um, you might have the cows dried off, so not being milked throughout the winter, and then carving in in the springtime, going out to the grass, and then producing more cheese then. I We have cows that are carving in springtime, and we also have a group that carve in the autumn time. So we have two blocks so we have a, a block of carving and then a block of serving that's getting the cows in calf a block of carving then a block of serving going around when the milk does change and even the color of the milk that changes so at the moment the cows are going out to grass even though we've just in march we even had them out in january for a little bit when they're out on the grass they get a lot more carotene in their milk and when i make the cheese that concentrates that change and i can see the curds looking almost orangey and the way looking bright yellow rather than greeny from the influences of that grass coming through we can make it throughout the year and there are differences throughout the year we also need to think about marketing as well the end product so although i make um great cheese all year round it's the autumn time and just before that i need to think about building up my stocks for christmas because everybody wants lots of cheese at christmas and i need to make sure that my cheese is ripe and ready and perfect for christmas i need to look at the ripening times on that for wiltshire loaf it's three months so in that autumn time that's when i'll be making for christmas for the blues just a little bit after that they've got a slightly shorter ripening time so that they can be perfect for that big christmas market Amazing. So would you be able to tell the difference then on, you know, when the cows are outside? Well, two questions, really. One is, well, how do you decide when they get to go and eat on the grass? So you mentioned January being mm. unusual. So, so how, how do you decide that? So but also, sorry, is, yeah. is, is how can, can you then tell the difference um, between the cheeses as in whether they've been, you know, kind of grass fed or, or fed indoors? So the cows go out depending on the conditions of the grass availability and what the ground is like as well. In January, we actually had quite dry ground. The grass was there, so the cows went out. And then if the weather, if the grass is then covered in snow, that's no good. <laughs> the cows can't go Makes out. Sense. <laughs> <laughs> Even not as a farmer, yeah. I can see the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't like digging yeah. for their grass before they get to their grass. 
that's how we'd make the decisions. And we're trying, we're really trying to get as much milk as we can from forage rather than from cow cake from the concentrate. That's where we focus. And that's what dad is really good at. He's good at growing great grass and making sure he gets a lot of milk from that grass. And you took a while to ask me two questions. What was your other Well, it was, it was because of that. Presumably <laughs> your motivation for doing that is because it has oh. an impact on the taste of the of the milk and the taste of the and cheese. The, and the, the motivation for doing it is because it is the natural behaviour of the cows. cows. Yeah. I'm going to show you a video after this of the cows galloping, going out after they've been in their sheds. You wouldn't believe how mobile a cow could be. You see them in the fields, stood around. But when you let them out and they're going to the grass after they've been in the loafing yards for a little while... They actually gallop. They're jumping. They're so playful. They look like horses. It's amazing. Um, they really like being out at grass and it's lovely to see them out there. That's the reason why I do Great. it. The, the cheese, that's secondary to it. Perfect. Funny enough, as you were saying it, I think I must have seen a video of cows yeah, being let out after. Yeah. How, how long are they indoors for? I appreciate that varies depending yeah. on the weather. So they, well, they're not indoors. They have um, straw cubicles. That's like their own beds in the dormitory right. where they can go and lie down. And then they can come out and walk around outside and they eat pickled grass in the winter it's a bit like winemaking silage making where you turn the grass and then you ferment it and then you can feed that to the cows in the winter so they're still having grass but it's pickled grass does that mean they're a little the bit tipsy in the winter is that uh, <laughs> how much how much well, fermented grass like to make a... they also have brewer's grains a byproduct from Do the they? beer making industry no as wonder well, they're all sort of galloping about when you let them out they're all hammered <laughs> <laughs> they're falling out the doors chad but, what we used to we have honey here as well we keep bees Chad made mead once and for our wedding, he made a lot of mead and he had quite a few batches that didn't work very well that he then fed to the pigs, you know, right. waste food you feed yeah, to the pigs. Absolutely. They were drunk. Yeah. They were lying on the electric fences. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's a, good, that's a good way of keeping them happy. I'm slightly envious now of the, uh, of, of the cows. Um, so you mentioned Wiltshire loaf as one of your cheeses and I got to try some earlier. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of that? The phrase chalk and cheese comes from Wiltshire. We have chalk downs in the south. We have clay pastures in the north. The clay pastures grow great grass, which in turn make exquisite cheese. And Wiltshire was famous for its cheese making. Each county had its own cheeses. That's not special. But what's special is that Wiltshire cheese was exquisite. Suffolk cheese was awful. And Wiltshire cheese was mentioned in two of Jane Austen's novels, Pride and Prejudice and Emma. Emma the Rebel ate hard Wiltshire cheese instead of soft cheese like a lady. And Mr Elton served very expensive Wiltshire loaf to show how up and coming he was in the world. Wiltshire loaf was made on this farm by my great-grandfather William Collingbourne because he wanted to change which dairy he was supplying and access the more lucrative London markets on the train to get his milk there. And you weren't allowed to go straight from one dairy to another. So to get over this break, he made cheese in the meantime and sold his cheese by horse and cart in Swindon that we now sell by van in London. Wiltshire Loaf won Best Territorial Cheese at the Great British Cheese Awards. And it's a hard cheese, maybe similar to a Gloucester type because we're neighbouring counties. We've got similar cheese-making approaches. Um, and... It's just lovely. I really like creamy cheeses. So lots of my cheeses are very smooth and creamy. Nice. And then we seem to have this, um, I don't know, perception maybe in the UK and ho hopefully not with you, but I, I, certainly in the restaurant trade that a lot of continental cheeses have the kind of glamour. And I get a little bit grumpy about anything, 
you know, I'm a big fan of follow the seasons. So I get upset that we, you know, asparagus mm-hmm. is available all year round, for example, and it's at its best. You know, we grow amazing asparagus down in the new forest. It takes three years to grow and then it's only at its best for about 10 weeks, uh, which I think is incredible. So so let's use it then. Um, but we have this, and, and then I remember some uh, cider, and I won't mention the brand, but I remember my bar team started selling uh, a sort of Scandinavian cider on the bar. And I was like, well, we've been doing cider and apples for generations, you know, and it's fine. I, you know, I'm all for the globe and I drink mm. coffee and that comes from all over the world. But when we're really, really good at something locally, let's celebrate that. So we're really good at cheese in, in the UK, I think, and in England. If you notice the change, did, did, did sort of British cheese go out of fashion and is it having a resurgence or actually has it always been uh, great? And what's this What's this sort of uh, the impact, I suppose, of the continental cheeses? People are very fond of quoting some statistic and I cannot tell you the numbers that there are more cheeses made in the UK than in France doesn't necessarily mean that our cheese is better but people quite like quoting that as an as a way through traditionally the territorial cheeses of britain are the hard ones they're great for being transported around the country they've got a good long shelf life like the wiltshire loaves cafillies cheshires lancashires cheddars all of those types of cheeses that's the traditional british cheese that the monks in our monasteries were making Whereas in France, continental cheeses, we tend to think of more oozy, soft type of cheeses, cheeses that are much stronger, perhaps more exciting tastes. They have the challenge, they have the benefit of having a short life to ripen, but then the challenge of needing very careful management because they have a short life once they're made, you've got to get them sold and eaten more quickly. And those types of cheeses, perhaps the ones that artisan cheesemakers are focusing on making more, it is really hard to become another territorial and earn your place on a cheese board. And I think perhaps a gimmick helps a little bit, try and break your way onto a cheese board to convince someone to give your cheese its place on a cheese board. We do a soft cheese, the Royal Bassett Blue. It's a bit like a blue brie. It's very oozy and unctuous. Um, the taste of the West judges described it as oozing sexily out of the packaging, even though sworn against blue cheese would find this one hard to resist. And that one's very popular in restaurants and pubs where they can have it on their cheese board or slice it um, horizontally and it makes perfectly positioned on a burger instead of Stilton, for example. Um, I'm not sure... How else? I mean, I suppose I know more about my personal cheese. There's a train, that, <laughs> like the ones that used to take my great-grandfather's cheese, um, milk to London. Um, I tend to eat a lot of... There's another train. <laughs> yeah, just in case you can't put that there is a train going past. We're not getting on a train. But they are close, aren't they? Yeah, we can hear the rumble. And so we'll find out where people will be listening going, train? Is she crazy? I said, we've gone from... Yeah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. The next time we're going Perfect. I think we pulled it off. Nobody, nobody will be thinking this is odd. Yeah. Uh, you said cows, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah. We're actually sat in the city. Are we in a sound effects room? Yeah. Lovely. So I tend to eat a lot of my cheese and know about my cheese. And I tend not to buy other people's cheeses, but it's a habit I need to get into more. And, and it's, you know, I have, I don't know how many tons of cheese I have just in that room there, but I still should be tasting more of other people's cheeses and trying more cheeses. When I'm on holiday, I do taste cheeses and buy cheeses and find the cheese shops. 
because I don't carry my own cheese with me abroad. Do you not? Often. How odd. Yeah. Sometimes I do. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Having just walked around your, uh, I don't know if you call it a cheese cellar, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you've got a lot of cheese. You're not going to run out for a little while, are you, I suppose? So. Um, you mentioned then um, about some of the stuff that chefs can do. So do you mm. supply uh, restaurants directly? And have you seen any particularly imaginative use of your uh, cheeses with chefs? Oh, there's a lovely pub here in the village, the Three Crowns in Brinkworth. And they are such passionate chefs. I think I, I think chefs are amazing. They work so hard. They work antisocial hours and they it's such a high stress environment and it's all about bringing everything together for that moment on the plate for the customer. And the customers are having a serene experience in the dining room uh, with the, 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 the waitress waitress going in between. but and they don't realize all of that stress and pressure that goes into creating that meal, that moment. I have so much respect for chefs and the ones in the pub just here, they are so exciting and they, you know, it's not the same menu all of the time. They'll release new menus. They like experimenting around. Um, I'll be going to the pub there to celebrate my dad's 70th birthday and I'll be having a Brinkworth Blue, which is one of my cheeses. Gnocchi. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yeah, I think you have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I like the fact you know what you're having for dinner already. Oh, you, you there's going to be a lot of us, so I've got to coordinate everyone okay. having their meal in advance. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, it's good that you respect. Have you worked in a kitchen? It's nice to hear your uh, appreciation for the chefs, because yeah, all too often people think, don't appreciate it. Well, I think because I, well, I think often when I, you know, food waste. People campaign against food waste, and when I look at food being wasted. I think about the hard work of the people, of the animals that are involved in making that. And if my children leave meals, I will tell them off and say, look, you know how hard work it is as a farmer to produce our food. So we're not going to waste that. Luckily, because we have so many pets and animals and peacocks and chickens and all sorts of creatures, we can give our food to them as well if we do have waste so it doesn't end up being waste so I have a great respect for that and when I think about the hard work that farmers do and I think about the, the stresses I think about perhaps there isn't quite and there never seems to be quite enough money to do everything exactly as you want to and I think it sometimes it can be the people involved that that suffer and have the stress and then just going on that still thinking about who's involved in food it does make me think about in the kitchens and that stressful environment and and how hard it is. And yeah, so we, I worked with, a, I brought a chef on board recently for, it sounds very glamorous. He came in for two days, but I'm going to say, I now have a development kitchen. Ooh, very nice. <laughs> we grow quince trees on the farm. And wow. so he was making quince and rosemary jellies and experimenting with spicy versions and things. So he came in and I was talking to him about chefing and it really got me thinking about yeah, the stress stresses of the kitchen. And my first ever job was working as a waitress in the Three Crowns pub. I started when I was 13, just about to turn 14. It was always a really, really busy pub. We worked so hard. And and it it, it just, yeah, there is a lot of stress back there in that kitchen, hard work. And yeah, I wish it didn't have to be such a stressy environment. It, yeah, yeah, it's, I, it's I, sad I, when you get the sereneness, the amazingness of the food, that there's all of that pressure leading up to that i mean kitchens might have changed since i worked there i don't think so i think it, they are still quite I think, intense I think, I think i think they're still pretty crazy um you might have a delivery do you need oh, to uh, exciting. Take that? we'll pause we'll pause it i hope it's exciting it's something we to could, eat we could open it on, on air yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i 
disposable food grade gloves. <laughs> wow, damn! I thought it was going to be some other delicious thing. I was it was another. They're dish. really good gloves, actually. Are I, they? I'm not going to eat them. They <laughs> are better than the ones I bet you use. They they fit so well. They're great. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'll let you That's try right. one. Yeah, on yeah, yeah. Bless you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I often think there should be a documentary in uh, in restaurants because the difference, as you alluded to, but the difference in what's happening uh, back of house in the kitchen for me, the pass in a restaurant is a fascinating place because it's where two cultures collide. Because in the kitchen, it's very What's the much pass? the pass. I don't, is where like, the food... you don't know cheese. I don't yeah, know restaurants. Yeah, yeah. So basically, <laughs> we're at the point where the food kind of leaves the kitchen yeah. and then yeah. goes into the restaurant. The past is where the food gets put under the hot lamps normally, yeah. and then the uh, the waiters and waitresses yeah. would come and take the food off the chef. Mm-hmm. And at that point, is this this sort of juxtaposition of cultures because the kitchen is very much around very precise timing, quite yeah. a stressful environment. Yeah. It's like that souffle is going to sink in the next sixty seconds yeah. if you don't get it yeah. out. That food's been sat there for ninety seconds. Yeah. They've got the next table on, and then the waiters and waitresses, rightly so, are in hospitality mode and they're going oh it's a birthday on table seven and table nine are having an anniversary and it's lovely and or oh, a couple of them have just popped outside for some fresh air they'll be back in a minute yeah. so you get this sort of airy <gasps> fairy hospitality that have these open kitchens yeah so <laughs> you do. well that's normally where you hear the chef swearing at the waiter going just get the effing food out and they're like yeah but they're just having a lovely time and now they're yeah. blowing up some more balloons and yeah it's uh it's a it's an interesting kind of crazy uh stressful environment but my chefs will be very pleased to hear your appreciation for uh for what I they do my gorgeous dishwasher earlier you as did, well actually. and you, you mentioned how pleased off. your KP would yeah, be with that huge. your kitchen porter it's the biggest dishwasher and, I've ever seen and I think the kitchen porters I hope you're nice to your kitchen porters most I important think, people in the business oh it's so nice to you hear know? you say that yeah. because um, certainly when I worked as a waitress they were the worst treated people and I always thought I hope my children are never kitchen porters they are the heartbeat <laughs> nothing happens in a restaurant without the kitchen porter every crockery every piece of cutlery every pan the chef is using yes. to make your amazing dish often the people are also having to run around the venue and grab a sort of you know we need more tomatoes we need more chips in the walk-in fridge you know it's the KP that's often running around and doing stuff so yeah they're the heartbeat good, they're good good, good crafters yeah, We've got a few... start, is there any sort of um, trade union for Save kitchen, the porters? kitchen porters I feel like I should start that You're <laughs> people are going to be listening She's so nice. It's the chefs, it's the kitchen porters. So, um, farmers markets. I want to talk about those briefly. So, uh, Chad, do you go and do the farmers markets as well? Or is that more Chad's domain? Or? Um, so, I do West Hampstead farmers market in London on a Saturday. Chad does Queen's Park in London on a Sunday. Chad is really good at building great customer relationships. I think that because I'm the more one that holds the purse strings and the more stingy one, he probably gives away more stuff and builds the good relationships than I can go in once he's made all friends with everybody and I can take over and then they can meet me and learn more about the product. Perfect, perfect partnership. So, yeah. And then... Um, I guess I, 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 a part of me is concerned on the lack of connection with where our food comes from, which we alluded to earlier. And then part of me is excited but what, by what I think is a, is a change, a sort of feels like a pivot at the moment where people are starting to really care again about food and trying to get that connection. What do you see through the farmer's market? Do you see, is it the same people coming every week or does it feel like there's new people and they're growing and there's more of a demand in the farmer's market? We're always looking to do better than we've ever done before. So at every market we're doing, we're always selling a little bit more. And if we're not, then we will look at what different products do we need to be introducing. We can be very responsive to our customers. For example, kefir, that's the latest trendy thing. Hasn't quite taken off in Wiltshire yet, but in London, that's going really well. People adore our kefir and are buying lots of that there. So this is a type of cheese? Oh, 
Oh my goodness, you have so showing, much to learn. Showing my naivety. I'm just asking for a friend. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> there will be people out there going, what's that? What is it? I don't think you don't listen to the archers either then. Uh, no. I might have missed no, maybe missed the last episodes. three or four hundred episodes, yes. possibly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Since I was out with my dad. Fear is a West traditional um Eastern European fermented milk. Similar to a drinking yogurt, you have kefir grains that you put in with the milk, you incubate it, and the milk will thicken, become a bit more acid. You can, it can almost have the slightly sweet or slightly alcoholic, and it's really, really good for you. There's 30 different microorganisms in there. Great for your gut culture, um, high in protein, a fabulous health food. It's a great thing to have. Um, just to drink to start off you with your day for, oh, there's my influx of health. Or you could have it on your cereal instead of milk or have it with fruit. It's really good for you. I'll get you some. Okay. I, don't, I don't know. don't know how much I've got left if I can give you any, but it's amazing stuff, Kafir. Um, I'm really, really healthy and trendy. Yeah, you've okay. got a lot to learn so, about yeah, dairy I have. trends. Yeah, I have. And, 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 well, I haven't been to London for a while. So that's what they're drinking up there then, is it? In the city. That's what but they're not drinking in, Wiltshire. in the city. Yeah, really? not in Wiltshire and not in... Where are you not, from again? But, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Bournemouth. Uh, Bournemouth. I used to live in London. I lived in London for 10 years. But yeah. it's interesting, yeah. things. That, things so yeah. Um, your question, your original question was about are people getting more interested in their food. I, I, I hope so. I hope... And we do, obviously, we do have lots of repeat business because otherwise you'd run out of business. Um, and we do have more people popping along. But do you think there's kind of a a binary or things happening in parallel? Sometimes I feel like people are interested in food, caring, wanting things to be as environmentally friendly as possible, wanting as high animal welfare as possible. But then also in parallel, there is a huge drive always in the UK for things to be as cheap as possible that was my very next question yeah, yeah it's so how important is price, price in all of this is, price is very important and the government has always been very keen to make sure that the customers are not paying too much for their produce um i wonder how long we go before i mention the word but i, I will try and avoid it a bit longer um so the government's always very keen to make sure people aren't paying too much. There's supermarkets will make sure that their basket of food is as cheap as possible. And so the items that people always buy, bread, bananas, milk, they have to be cheap, which means that that product is then devalued. So when I, they might be paying those farmers for that milk, a fair trade price. But for me, when I'm trying to sell my bottle of milk at a price that reflects the high animal welfare standards, the care that we put into caring for the countryside, it's much more expensive than the supermarket milk because that is underpriced. People do care about price. And they're sort of like, I feel that what's coming is that we're going to be wanting British farmers to continue to be farming to the high animal welfare standards, high environmental standards. But we're going to be getting, and I hope they won't be tariff free, but many, many world imports where products won't have been produced to that high animal welfare standards high environmental standards and the public will feel safe and secure and good thinking oh I know that British farmers are doing the right thing but at the same time actually putting their money in the pockets of the less high quality products and buying those foods that haven't been produced in the same way it's a real fear and I think it's going to be very detrimental to the British farming industry 
you know, and all the services that farmers do for being custodians of the countryside. Yeah, so I'm this, worried. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes sense. And I, and I don't. This is uh, the, the Brexit word, presumably that you were <laughs> you trying not to. I said it. I'll take. Yeah, yeah, I'll take. I'll take the blame. People You've are switching off and booing as they uh, as they hear it. Go, oh God, not again. But I think please phone in with what penalty you think Mark yeah. should have. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I do think I, I. It's not. It's not that it's irrelevant, but it's. Um, it's in so many other parts of our lives, with or without Brexit. It's the same conversation that I'm having around this fear that of the high street becoming beige because mm. it's dominated by the big venture capitalist brands that turn hospitality into a commodity and everybody that i speak to says oh it would be a real shame if the high street was just full of the same formulaic dull rebranded you know same food all year round doesn't follow seasonality it's just heated up in a bag and it's not made by a real chef and everyone's like that'd be terrible mark i'd hate a world like that and then i say where do you where did you last go out for dinner and i'm not going to use any brand names because when i do um the lady that helps me makes these podcasts has a heart attack and makes me edit them hello miranda i'm remembering you um why but, is that is that because you're advertising them or because you're because i'm about them? to slag them off and say that they're rubbish <laughs> and annoying and their food's junk and that uh, they're only interested in money and not actually genuinely you know genuine hospitality but that's where people go invariably and eat and i do think it's an education thing i do think that people want to support the british farmer um i think that you know like you say they have this this hypothetical or, or even you know real desire that the animal welfare is important and where our food comes from and food miles and all that kind of stuff but you're right price ends up you know playing mm. uh, playing its part and all sorts and i hope you know that's the kind of the point of these conversations really is to actually speak and go behind all of this product behind all of this produce is human beings you mentioned earlier about you know sort of food waste and i when i train my guys in the restaurant and i tell them about you know anything as simple just as a as a cheeseburger and I'm kind of like you know the number of people involved in that you've got the baker who never takes his kids to school because every day he's at work at like four in the morning kind of baking fresh breads and you know just to make the roll sometimes you feel like people's backs are being broken to enable this to happen I think that's sad yeah yeah, absolutely you know and then you've got the person actually making the plate you've got you know the lettuce especially in the winter you know some of the tomatoes and the lettuce might be coming in from Europe so there's a a Spanish farmer out there who's been who's been grafting away for the tomatoes and they've been driven across Europe to get to you Um, the actual beef and where that's come from and like you say you know as the the cow being taken outside and grazed has been brought Mm. inside you've talked about the amount of work that goes into looking into the cow and then you know it'll get all the way to that point and i don't know chef will will burn the bun or burn the burger or a customer will will you know go for a walk and come back to the table and go it was cold and we have to make another one i'm like oh man there was 27 human beings have been involved in bringing that dish Mm. to you and we've just thrown it away just like that and thought nothing of it and people will be you know they think food should be cheap and they think they should just be able to you know bring me another one you make a bloody fortune out of of food and drink anyways so uh, so it's a concern but yeah hopefully these conversations help hopefully you going to farmers markets help but clearly uh price and the pressure of supermarkets then you've 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 witnessed that it's a real issue it is and in order to be able to command a good price you need to make sure that your product is not a commodity you need a point of difference you need to say why is it i mean obviously for our yogurt I'll let you taste some of our yogurt. It is the best yogurt you will ever taste. And it just on taste, on ingredients, it is the best yogurt there is. And that's a point of difference. People are addicted to our yogurt. It's incredible. So there's no problem selling that. With milk, it's hard because it is seen as such a commodity product for people to justify to themselves why they should pay more money when they can get it more cheaply. I hope that them appreciating the care 
that we put into our animals and into our farm and people you know if they sometimes people will buy 10 yogurts from me and say well can I have a discount then and I just look them firmly in the eye and say well thank you so much for helping to make sure that our animals are looked after properly and giving us a fair trade price for our milk by buying this yogurt at full price thank you thank you for supporting us is that okay. like a no that's, yeah. that's like a Kerry no I mean obviously everybody else would just say yes yeah, <laughs> yeah but no but I love but everybody else <laughs> Yeah. Chad me. would have said yes. Chad, Chad would, have would have said yes. Have a Chad couple of me. Here's it's fine. Five more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Which which market's Chad's at? I'm going to Chad's market. Yeah, yeah. You need to go to Queens Park to see Chad for the discounts, or if you really want to make sure yeah, those save cows the future are getting, of farming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd like to see that as a competition. The emotional bribe. How many people are going to go for cheap Chad, and yeah. how many people are going to go for uh, yeah cheerful Kerry and keeping the yeah. uh, keeping the animals happy? So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so with all of that knowledge you've got, and I was um, chatting to um, Helen from the um, Soil Association, and the amount of knowledge she's got around farming and organic farming, and the impact that we're having on the world, and how are we going to feed ten billion people? And you know, it's, it's, I felt the weight of responsibility. I, I used to love ignorance is bliss, but the more mm. I find out about you know, kind of what sort of fish we can sell because of our fishing methods and stuff like that. Once you, once you have this knowledge, uh, personally, I can't ignore it and I mm-hmm. therefore need to live that way. And I'm far from perfect, but with all of the knowledge you've got around farming, does it have an impact on, on the food you buy and what you eat and where you get your food from? Or even for you, is it still a challenge and you still end up popping in the supermarket for a rubbish yogurt? Oh, there's so many interesting things you just said then about feeding the world. I want to come back to that. And then the thing I've just forgotten, and then the actual question you asked. Now, <laughs> that's often the case. I often ask eight questions in one. I'm sorry, I get a bit excited. So you answer whichever me. one you like, though. So my personal, um, personal buying decisions. I should challenge you to come and look in my fridge, and we should have a rummage, shouldn't we? Well, that's the real, yeah. the guilt thing, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. currently in my fridge, of course, there is heaps of my dairy produce. So what the customers haven't bought, that's what me and my kids will have. So there's loads of milk and yogurt and cheese in there, well, except we've eaten all the cheese. We had cheese on toast yesterday. Because we do the farmer's markets, we're friends with the other stallholders, we get given loads of their produce. So my children and my husband and I do have very high quality food from there. We do go to supermarkets as well. I know there's a chicken that's not from the farmer's market in my fridge that my husband bought. I'm trying to picture my fridge and see what's there. I'm and not Chad again. I feel yeah. like we're bullying him now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> He's amazing. He's the reason why we did all of this. Exactly. Yeah, I'm obviously going to blame, but no, actually I've, I've got um, vegetables I've bought from the supermarket and I, I just bought that online. I didn't look to see where that had been grown or anything. And yet I'm friends with vegetable holders at the farmer's markets. And so that's me sticking two fingers up at them, isn't it? Each time I'm doing that without thinking. Meanwhile, they're getting their pre-grated factory-made cheddar and doing the same to me, I'm sure. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's why there's not there's not a definitive answer to this. I think it is, you know, it's about all, all doing our little stuff. Nobody's perfect at the end of the day. I don't think we can live on planet Earth and have zero impact. But I think if we can all... Or we'll try and be a little bit more conscious. So you could be very sanctimonious and telling everybody off and never be invited anywhere. <laughs> you could, yeah, yeah, have no friends. You'd be all right out here. There's or, nobody around. Know, baby steps. We do a little, you know, we all do a little bit, a little bit better each yeah. time. So do a little bit of what you can. You mentioned about, I mean, I'm always, I'm always back to food waste. And of course, just another food waste tip. If you have loads of food, just have it friends over. 
just get your friends over to eat. Or if you can't be bothered to cook, give them the food. Food does not need to be wasted. If you don't have pets, well, you know, give it to your friends. If it's too old for your friends, give it to your pets. Get a pig, something. Don't waste food. Back to feeding the world. So people do talk about why do we need cows at all? The thing is that we've got some land which is best suited to growing grass and will not grow other types of crops very well. Humans cannot digest grass. Cows can. So... I think that's why we still need cows, even though there might be arguments that we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, everything we do, we need to try and treat our animals as best we can, take their needs into account as much as we can. But if we've got land that's only suitable for grass and we can't eat grass, we've got animals that can do that for us and then in turn make amazing products. I bought some coconut yogurt style alternative something the other day I've got a lot of that left in my fridge I was trying that out and really you when it comes down to taste at the end of the day the taste is so much better of dairy products than the alternatives yeah, yeah. we could have a whole another podcast on that and I've been on a journey I've learned a lot in the last 12 months and, and, and everything's nuanced and, and a debate I guess and so go back uh, 12 months ago and, uh, and and I was very anti not anti the vegan movements but a lot of a lot of angry vegans a lot of angry there vegans there are a lot of angry vegans but I saw somebody's gorgeous New Year's resolution on Twitter it was about let's not have all this hate and polemical debate, but let's respect each other's views. And I kind of would would love if that sort of feeling could come forward, if we could all learn from each other and you 100%. Know. yeah yeah and it, well it, it does a disservice to the debate so actually the the, the stuff i've learned since then around uh, nutrition and i've cut mm. down a lot on uh, on dairy and on meat and for many parts of the year don't eat any of it and then i do when i'm traveling and obviously it's my industry so mm. um you know, I didn't come on the planet to make the world a worse place, but it's clear that we can. We're going off on a slight tangent here, but it's clear mm. that we can't feed 10 billion people and eat the amount of meat that we currently eat. So it, we've either got to learn how to uh, rear animals and, and meat in a different way or what we feed them, or, you know, probably the common sense approach is just to eat a bit less meat and eat to eat more pulses and grains and vegetables and stuff like that. So not to change completely, because I didn't come on to planet Earth to kind of leave it but in a worse place. if you're eating place. more pulses and grains and so on also do that in a thoughtful way so if you're thinking oh, i won't have cow's milk i'm going to drink soya drink remember it's soy drink it's not milk instead think about how that soy is produced and perhaps rainforest destruction food miles and that coming in do that in a in the same sensitive way the reasons that are making you consider making vegan choices or, or the reasons that are making you think i should have less meat or have less dairy have the same thoughtful approach to the alternatives that you're taking. Don't take something else that's also having... 100%. And this is why it's fascinating, isn't it? It's why it's such an interesting debate. And as again, chatting to Helen earlier, who started to try and grow uh, almonds and walnuts and stuff like that, and then actually saying, look, there isn't even a processing plant for almonds locally. It's kind of stuff that we used to grow that and we don't anymore. how did you get on growing them? Uh, I think they're going well, yeah. 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 I don't, we didn't go into a huge amount of detail, but she was just talking about biodiversity. I was wondering about doing oats, because I think yeah. oat milk 
yeah. seems to be really nice. Because I work with soy and almond. There's allergies linked to that. Yeah. I think about oat milk and I could do oat milk cheese and yeah. work on that. I think, yeah, yeah. We've just opened a juice bar down in Bournemouth and we're saying the same thing about from allergies. You know, oat milk is, is probably the, the, you know, the, the best one to use. But again, not my area of expertise, but I just love learning. I love the debate. And it's not, mm. I think the, the, the angry vegan campaigning Well, that's side, not the debate I love. And I'm quite scared of that kind of debate. I've yeah, been asked to be on TV programs before mm. as answering for the dairy industry yeah. against vegans and i've shied away from that because yeah, i don't, I don't think you. that's it's not my a debate you'll probably um, responsibility yeah. and i no. think there can be quite a lot of negative and it can be a bit there can scary and it's a way. shame because it does a disservice to the informed debate around mm. nutrition and health mm. and actually mm. what what does a balanced diet look look like and i think we all recognize that having you know red meat for breakfast lunch and dinner seven days a week probably isn't a good idea and we should all eat a bit more fruit and vegetables i don't think anybody debates that but the anger and the venom that comes across sometimes with that is a shame because it, it destroys um the sort of articulation conversation and then the the pressure on farming and the difference because that's the key thing like you say is think about your alternative but the difference in the kind of farming that you do and the animal welfare standards and how much you you know you know those cows names and their yeah. history and how long they've been on the farm oh, yet the, the industrialization well that'll be perfect we've got sarah think. there's one that was born very small so sarah and it didn't even we have a calf jacket for the calves when it's cold or they're they're from you know they, they might be cold and this one was shivering but it was too small for our calf jacket so sarah who looks after the calf took off her jumper and converted it into a jacket for the calf so it's got a little red jumper (laughs) and most of the farmers i speak to have this genuine love of the land and compassion for animals and they want to farm in a in a welfare orientated way but the flip side is they have this this pressure of industrialization and of yield and it feels like a lot of them feel like well we've had to do this but it doesn't feel right you know we've we've, we've compromised to do this and then the, there feels to be this there's this desire to move back into more say traditional kind of farming approach but actually that's challenging because you know what's their route to market and it comes back to the thing about price so yes. we need the you consumer to, to be willing to way. pay more yeah. and i i share your concern on on the change in imports and again something that, that Helen Browning was talking about was you know an, an influx of meat from America and the amount of antibiotics that they use compared to us and all of that kind of I know. stuff so. when I start researching it I was thinking if I go to America what on earth I'm going to eat yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah <laughs> I'm have to yeah. be organic everything yeah. well that's a, probably a good time for you to travel with your cheese although I don't know if the US will let you in whether if you come with just a just a backpack of, uh, of, of self-contained cheese so um so you know now you've got you know clearly uh a huge amount going on you're getting uh you know a massive uh, reputation for award-winning cheeses mm. and were you uh was it a farmer of the year last so, year um yeah last month the butter won best butter in the taste of excellence awards at the cream awards and i was awarded the title of dairy ambassador as were well you? yeah okay. because well, of doing things like this so thank yeah, you perfect. because of you talking yeah. to me <laughs> Well, and yeah, and, and, and you're at the Getting farm. But thank you. It's kind, it's kind of you. I'll show so, you your reward in a minute. Yeah, yeah bless you. Um, so, do you ever feel overwhelmed by that? By the kind of the you know what what you you start those little steps? Oh, I quite like cheese. You know, I'll make some cheese. And now you 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 know you've created this uh, this responsibility, I suppose, for looking after the animals and taking on the farm, and then for for actually going to the markets. And you talk about how busy you are. Does it feel overwhelming? And how do you I'm manage that? I'm a real because- warrior. I am a big warrior. I do care about things I do worry about lots of things so I do feel the pressure and I don't know why the sorry do you want to make some coffee machine noises (laughs) (laughs) don't worry I don't think nobody will have heard that (laughs) yes I do worry about the responsibility of everything I have 
one husband, two businesses, three kids. And, and it's a lot. And we're doing a lot just ourselves. There's a lot of work there. There's a lot of responsibility, a lot of different things to get my head around. You know, you were talking about learning things earlier and anything that you do, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. So taking on the farm, I haven't been thinking as I was growing up that I was taking on the farm. I've still got a lot to learn there. And then with an award like Dairy Ambassador, that's an award where, okay, I love talking about farming and dairying and I love getting great publicity for dairying. But an award like Dairy Ambassador, I think, I don't really deserve this. Someone else should have this. And I, it's something I now feel the pressure to live up to. And so, you know, I keep on, keep on going, keep on doing. Uh, in terms of coping, although you think having children makes things harder, if I didn't have the children, my only focus would be work and I wouldn't stop working. I've got three children, which means that when the school day ends, I need to give them my attention and they become, again, the centre of my world and everything else, if you have your own business, you're never off duty, but everything else takes a backseat to that. So in having children, it forces me to go and do fun things with them instead of just working. So although you think that having a family makes things harder, having a family probably improves my mental health a lot because it means that I've got the distraction of them and playing with them. That's no, true. And I, and I wouldn't feel bad. I think that imposter syndrome that you refer to with being the dairy ambassador, yeah. every entrepreneur I speak to pretty much feels like an imposter and feels like they're winging it. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I, I bought the domain years ago, everybody's winging it.com because the key thing that I worked out at quite a young age is nobody knows what they're doing. We're all yeah. just learning every day. We learn something. We get, you know, there's no way that you can possibly have been created to do what you do on a day-to-day -day basis in the same way that I can't. But we just work it out, don't yeah. we? I suppose I started quite young doing all of this and now this year I turn 40. Did you? Hey. And no, not yet. I'm still 39. Okay. I'm still yeah, I was going to say that. There's yeah, no obviously way you I can don't be 40. 40 yet. <laughs> not at all. Not way, when is it? Uh, it's at least a month. Yeah, yeah. good July. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm looking around and there are now people younger than me achieving amazing things. And I think, oh, God, they're just a child, just a baby. And they're doing that. <laughs> it's true. It's the same in restaurants. Do you ever yeah. look at really famous people and see what they've achieved and you think, Oh, I haven't done that by that age. <laughs> yeah. Well, even just just chatting to uh, to Helena, I've alluded to a couple of times, but uh, yeah, the, the amount of stuff she's involved with in the National Trust and the RSPB and the Soil Association, mm. and then you know kids' schools and education and stuff like that. But yeah, the trouble is, I think the more you do and the more you become known, and it's the same clearly with you being recognised for dairies. You know, opportunities present themselves, and most things are interesting. Learning is fascinating. Growth is fascinating. We're all on this this kind of journey. This is why I love doing this podcast because I now leave knowing a hell of a lot more about. About, about cows yes. and cheese yes. and even some sort of fermented milk and drunk pigs, uh, which is exciting. <laughs> um, do you get many people, so now with, you, with your reputation, I imagine the barriers to entry to come in and kind of, you know, set up your own uh, cheese company or your own farm are huge because like you said, there's often, farms are often multi-generational. Well, when we started out in 2006, there weren't many, well, there weren't as many people doing cheese. And although you say it's a high barrier to entry, there, you know, there is, kit that you need and stuff. it's not massive barriers to entry Do compared to other businesses you don't need a herd of cows to make cheese you need milk it's different yeah absolutely and that's so, a genuine question <laughs> so you don't you, you can source your milk i mean it's great to have your own cows because then you've got control of the whole process you're really close to it but no to make cheese you, you don't need the cows so it's actually quite a low barrier to entry so lots more people have come in and started doing it since we started 
getting into farming, that can be a higher barrier to entry typically. But there are share farming opportunities where people come in. There might be an older farmer retiring and then a young couple could come in and work the farm together. And so there are, there are opportunities of farming. It, it's obviously easier if you're inheriting it or... But except for all of that pressure of the weight yeah. of the generation. Yeah, responsibility. <laughs> responsibility. Yeah. But be a yeah, sixth generation. There, there are ways of getting into farming. Um, I mean, you're right. It's not not as easy, perhaps. And there are certainly plenty of farming jobs around if you want. If you want, you know, there there are lots of opportunities in farming, and it's in a really exciting industry to be in. It's you get to. It's such varied work. Many different things you can do, and great technology coming into the industry as well it's a good job yeah it sounds fascinating so my, my, my question around that was going to be do you ever hear because you, you know as you become more well known people potentially will get in touch whether that's coming to see you at the farmers markets or social media but people who want to get involved either in food production or, or or cheese or maybe just farming in general do you ever hear any really really bad advice where you go my god that's absolute rubbish or really good advice where you go yeah absolutely that's what you should do what do you mean that people are people who are interested in this industry who want to come into who are entrepreneurial foods in vogue people want to they, they want to they don't want to go and work in a bank they don't want to go and work in the city they think oh look kerry's making beautiful cheese i'd really like hey. to make cheese do you ever hear advice where people go oh yeah that's that's really easy you I just think, need 20 yeah. quid and a I cheese suppose, machine i suppose what? lots of people think that kind of have their ambition of they have their work and then they think oh i'll retire to the countryside and have some fields sometimes when everything feels really hard work here i comfort myself and i say to chad we're living the dream aren't we this is what everyone wants that's <laughs> bit up at ridiculously early and stinking of cow muck and blah um so lots of people want that and people do look and they do want to start on the farmer's markets they might have an idea for something but if somebody starts something in a hobby way, they'll make a hobby amount of money. If someone works at something hard, they'll succeed. Yeah, so it's just that that continuous graph. It's your work ethic, yeah. Absolutely, and I think farmers uh, ooze work ethic because you are generally known. I mean, it's not, like you say, those cows have been have been milked every day, twice a day mm. for, I don't know, what's 108, 109 years yes. or something like that. That you, you, you can't switch it off, can you? You can't just go, oh, we'll just, you know, close down for no. a month. Sometimes I consider farmers, like, they do work really hard. And I wonder what they would be like as employees. And I think amazing work ethics. So both my sisters aren't in farming now, but they work so hard in the jobs that they do. They have a great work ethic. But the other thing about farmers is they, they've never really had a boss. So I think if you were to employ a farmer, that wouldn't quite work so well because they're not used to being told what to do. They're amazingly talented people, can turn their hands to anything. They make do and just get on. You know, you're on your own. You improvise with whatever you need to do. So they are incredible people. I agree with that. So I, I think I'd just like to say, you know, thank you for sparing the time to talk to me, but thank you more for, for being a farmer and for kind of making the food and making amazing Aww. stuff. That Feels that... like Harvest Festival with you. <laughs> will you break into song, Mark? Yeah, What's I will, your maybe, Harvest maybe. Festival hymn? I bet you've I'm got a few. A, oh yeah. yeah, I'm always at Harvest Festivals <laughs> regularly. You can tell, yeah. I, feel like I try to remember them from your kids' primary school. <laughs> never have I felt more city. I used, to, I used to take in a tin of beans at Harvest Festival, which is terrible, Carly but I didn't fluffy, know. Cabbage is green. Wow. <laughs> I'd forgotten. I'm having a flashback. <laughs> I'm having a flashback to school. Um, but yeah, where can people find out? So that I, most people listening to this are obviously going to go, I need to try some of that cheese and amazing yoghurt. And not everybody wants to go to London. So are there, can they buy online? Are there other places isn't they can it go? it fabulous nowadays? On, I can't sound so old. Online. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? That tinternet, that's come on. Hey. God, you invented that. Um, Brinkwithdairy.co.uk 
you can buy my produce online. I can courier it to you. We courier it in sheep's wool. Do so you? it remains cool. Okay. And on next From day, your own sheep? You don't have that as well. Not it's not all in-house. Sheep. No. no, it's wool cool packaging. Um, so you can buy online. We're not in as many shops as we should be. So if you also buy my produce and want your shop to stock it, make them stock it. That would be lovely. Yeah. Um, I like doing Twitter and Instagram and Facebook so you can see lots of little video clips of what we're doing and photographs. There's, It's yeah, beautiful. All the products are beautiful and the farm is beautiful. So you can look at that as well. Okay. Same uh, same handle, I think it's called, isn't it? On all of those channels for Brinkworth, do you know? Goodness or knows. Just Google it. Some of it. it might be hyphenated. Somewhere. Yeah. But, 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 <laughs> just I check will... out Brinkworth Dairy. You'll yeah, find perfect. it. You'll get there. I will put if some links in. you can't find it, you don't deserve it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll work harder. Wow. You've not, you're not even going to pay a good price. You've got a graph to get it. When's Chad coming in and giving everything away again? Um, okay. Well, look. Uh, I'd love to touch base again. It's fascinating. Good yeah, we luck. need to come back. I do want to talk to you some more. Um, yeah, so many other debates we could have had. Definitely. <laughs> Stemming yeah, out from yeah, this. I yeah. feel like it's a tree of a conversation. Yeah, believe it or not, it's been an hour. So people will be, uh, <laughs> they'll be arriving at work. They'll need to get out of their cars. They'll need to stop walking the dog, riding their bikes, whatever they're doing. But yeah, no, I agree with you. The, the you know, limitless um, conversations around food and drink and where it comes from and the issues behind yeah. it and stuff. So yeah, we'll definitely touch base again. But for now, thank you so much for sparing the time. Good luck with what you do. You've broken my podcast virginity. <laughs> wow, it's a pleasure. Thank goodness for that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was trying to think with mine, but uh, I don't think I've ever had... Uh, how old was that cheese we were trying? So yeah, oh, thank yeah. you for introducing me to the world of uh, uh, yeah of great quality cheese fresh from, from, a, from a pedigree herd of cows. So, all right. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks, Mark. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.